Welcome to Phone Booth Fighting, podcasting twice a week, every Tuesday and Friday, new episodes post up. I am Richard, he is Frank, and we get together and do this normally in person twice a week, but I have to explain and qualify that this week uh, we're doing it remotely because I'm, I'm basically under quarantine, Frank. I've, I've fallen ill. So uh, I don't want to get you sick or, or your large family. So I've decided to stay on my side of uh, Summerlin and leave you over on your side, and we'll just do this over the phone. So uh, I hope you appreciate Sounds my great. sacrifice. Yeah, I really appreciate it because when one of us gets sick, we just pass it all and rotate it around two or three times. Yeah, that's what I was afraid of. So we're that's kind of why we're doing it uh, this way and little bit of an abbreviated edition at that but uh, lots to get to here in a shortened version of phone booth fighting we're going to first of all I'm going to be visiting with Damian Maya I talked to him yesterday morning when I was even sicker than I am today had a uh, phone conversation with him I'll be playing that for you because as I'm sure you know he is headlining this weekend's UFC fight night card in Vancouver taking on the natural born killer Carlos Condit Frank and I are going to be breaking down that main event as well as the rest of the main card that's going to be televised uh, live Saturday night on uh, the Big Fox Network. And uh, we've also got a couple of big free agent signings to talk about. One UFC veteran staying with the organization, another UFC veteran set to make his departure. Uh, but before we do that, I want to mention a couple of things. Number one, I got a comedy date to plug, Frank. This Sunday night, if uh, you're in the Las Vegas area, I will be hosting the uh, 8 p.m. show at the L.A. Comedy Club inside the Stratosphere Hotel and Casino. That, of course, is where Frank and I have done our last two live broadcasts of Phone Booth Fighting. But this uh, particular Sunday night, August 28th, will be all comedy. I'll be kicking off the bill, and uh, an old friend of mine, actually, from Texas, Sean Halpin, a very funny comedian, is going to be on the bill as well. If you want to come out, it's not a free show unless you know me. And if you listen to this podcast, that qualifies as knowing me because I don't have any real friends. So uh, just by virtue of the fact that you either listen to this podcast or follow me on social media or maybe both, that makes you my good, true friend. So if you're going to be in the area and you want to come out to uh, see the show for free and get on my guest list, all you got to do is hit me up on social media. Uh, Twitter and Instagram, at Richard Hunter. You can send me a Facebook message, whatever you want to do. Just let me know you want to be on the guest list. I'll get you in there, uh, on there, and I'll get you in the show for free. No problem. That invitation extends to you as well, Frank. I got a spot for you on my guest list if you want to come out. I'm excited. That's right, because now we're in the same uh, business. I mean, we're both stand-up comedians, so you want to actually come out and just kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know, do I guess engage in a little uh, shop talk, you know, in between sets or something with the fellow comedians, right? Yeah, it's like watching the other guys go down there and train and fight. So that's right. It's like watching somebody train. So that's uh, this Sunday night at the L.A. Comedy Club inside the Stratosphere Hotel and Casino for one of my comedy dates. Get your official uh, Phone Booth Fighting logo t-shirts right now at phoneboothfightingshop.com. That's phoneboothfightingshop.com. Available in uh, a couple of color choices. And uh, you're seeing more and more people wearing those out. I saw somebody... Uh, 
tag you on Twitter wearing one of those. Frank, he was at an airport or something, and uh, saw you retweeted that. So nice to see those uh, getting out. Don't get left out. Get yours today at phoneboothfightingshop.com. And, Frank, I am proud to announce we have just received our 100th five-star review on iTunes. How about that? A centennial moment. That's awesome. Our five, we're actually at 101 now, uh, but uh, you can uh, start us on the trek towards 200, the bicentennial, by going to our iTunes page. And, uh, oh, Frank, I hope you didn't just catch it over the phone. I'm doing everything nah, I can to keep you healthy. Okay. Uh, go, to, go to our iTunes page, uh, Phone Booth Fighting on iTunes. Click on that five-star review, please. It, it Like a like hundred of you have done up to this point, it really is a tremendous help to us. It keeps us in the uh, rankings of the top sports podcasts on iTunes. And uh, if you're feeling extra so inclined, then um, write us a favorable line or two in the way of a review. And of course, as I always say, the most important thing you can do for us above anything else is to tell a friend about phone booth fighting. That's how we're going to grow the presentation. All right, let's get into some mixed martial arts talk, Frank. Donald Cowboy Cerrone is staying with the UFC. He's inked an eight-fight deal with the organization, and at the rate that he fights, that should be good for about 18 months, I think. That'll at least keep him with the organization. A little over a year, he'll be out. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was, you know, it came up at the press conference Saturday night at UFC 202, of course, uh, Cerrone made quick work of Rick's story, and it was brought up that he was at the end of his deal, and he said that he anticipated not leaving Las Vegas until he had his next fight made and, and you know, presumably a, a new contract with the UFC at that point. It looks like that's exactly what happened. And uh, kind of interesting that in the day and age of free agency where, you know, we've seen a lot of guys, one in particular that we're about to talk about following in the footsteps of High-profile guys like uh, Benson Henderson, for example, who have uh, left the UFC via free agency. Uh, Cowboy Cerrone, who would have been a a very uh, attractive free agent, really didn't want any part of it. Really uh, didn't even want to get into any negotiation. Just said, you know what, I'm I'm UFC for life, and as long as they give me a fair deal, I'm staying with the organization. And sounded like he really didn't want to have to mess with it for too long. No, it seems like I'm in... I think he's really still trying to aspire to become a champion in the UFC. So I really think until he attains that goal, him going somewhere else is just not very likely. Yeah, he's um, he will remain with the organization. No word yet on when his next fight will be, or for that matter, at what weight class. You know, that was something you and I talked about on the last episode. Cerrone saying he is headed to lightweight to challenge Eddie Alvarez for the 155-pound title, and Greg Jackson begging him to stay at 170 pounds, where he's got a massive amount of momentum right now in the welterweight division. So that will remain to be seen. But nonetheless, the good news, regardless of what weight class he competes at, is that Donald Cowboy Cerrone is staying with the UFC for his next eight fights. Somebody who is not going to be staying with the UFC, Frank, is the Red King Rory McDonald. He is leaving the UFC after uh, intentionally letting his contract run out to test free agency, and he's headed to Bellator. It is expected that he will make his debut with that organization sometime in the early part of 2017. What are your thoughts on this one, Frank? Because this really is one of the most high-profile free agent defections 
of the UFC. I think, uh, I mean, it, is it right there with Benson Henderson? I mean, Benson Henderson was a former champion, but certainly among the two of them, uh, you're, you're talking about fellow top contenders. Definitely. I think, uh, you know, obviously Roy wasn't the champ and Benson was, so, you know, I might give Benson just a little bit higher, slight edge, but uh, Roy McDonald's been, you know, very largely uh, talked about as being the next contender of welterweight. Uh, you know, there was always talk about him back, you know, that he was going to be the next uh, GSP training up there in that camp. And, uh, you know, he's been largely successful. Uh, his last outing obviously got caught by uh, Wonder Boy as far as uh, not being able to uh, decipher his uh, his kicks and his uh, range. But for the most part, Roy's looked very dominant in the UFC. So uh, it is a huge uh, loss to the, the rankings, uh, to the division, because being the guy who's, you know, top five, top ten guy in the, the welterweight. Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, when, when you look at his record over his UFC career, his only UFC losses are to Carlos Condit, and then the pair of losses to Robbie Lawler, and then this most recent one to uh, Wonderboy Thompson. So only one guy who hasn't been a champion of the welterweight division. Uh, so losses have been few and far between for him. Uh, he's also uh, still quite young. Uh, he's uh, 27 years old, and a guy that could you know, conceivably be better in the next couple of years than he is even right now. And a lot of times we don't see that when an organization like Bellator or like World Series of Fighting gets uh, a UFC veteran, Frank. A lot of times it's when guys are kind of, you know, either on the downside of their career, or they're maybe riding a multiple fight losing streak or something like that. Uh, it seems pretty rare that, that a guy is is still considered maybe not only at the top of his game, but maybe having not even reached his peak yet, and and here he is off to another organization. Yeah, this is probably the first time that we've talked about such a high-profile athlete who's on the rise more than on the downfall. Uh, it isn't like Rory's best fights are behind him. I think he's uh, uh, somebody that hopefully in the future, though, you know, the UFC's probably looking to get back, and if not, uh, I look to make immediate uh, impact in Bellator and, possibly be the champion and then you know, to start up that talk about there's other organizations out there that you have a guy who could be the champion in the UFC but he's a champion somewhere else well I think the other interesting thing about this move particularly to Bellator is that with Benson Henderson over there now you have a compelling fight that you could make between two top superstars who are uh you know who, who are still in their 20s just just off fresh off of their UFC runs uh one of them uh, well I say Benson Henderson's 32 now so he's a little bit older than I was thinking but uh a former you a very you know fairly recently former UFC champion now he did make his debut in Bellator at welterweight and then uh lost that fight and then returned back to lightweight but that doesn't mean he couldn't go back to welterweight to take on Rory McDonald because a lot of times I think what happens, Frank, in these organizations like Bellator is even if they're able to get a big free agent signing, a lot of times there's not a natural rival for them in that organization. So they instantly become a big fish in a small pond, and it seems like the other piece of that puzzle is to try to have a compelling rival for them within that organization in order to, to drum up interest for their fights. I agree with you. There's times you get, you know, high level guys to get over there. But again, like you're saying, it's usually the one guy and he, you know, he ends up becoming the champ or, you know, cleaning out the division. 
And here you have a situation where you have two top-level guys in the top 10. You know, now that creates depth. And I think, you know, the divisions right now, that's, you know, the other organizations is what they're really clamoring for, is not only to have that high-profile athlete, but to have several of them that creates depth. And then you have those type of uh, matchups that really, uh, you know, garners attention. So Benson Henderson, uh, actually this Friday, is taking on Patricky Pitbull over there in Bellator at Bellator 160. That's going to be on Friday night. So presumably, I would think with Rory McDonald inked by Bellator, they would probably have him on television there to at least announce his arrival. And depending on how things go for Benson Henderson at his welterweight debut, possibly start thinking about him against Rory McDonald uh, if he can get past uh, uh, Patricky Pitbull. So, the, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was say maybe a few fights between the two of them to build up a little of interest. Oh, I think having them both right out the gate going at it would be a, a, a lack of momentum. Because then, then they lose both, you know, then one of their guys takes a loss. I think, that, you know, like how the UFC does, you have two guys that have a relatively good name. I think you try to keep them separated till it's, you know, uh, Till it's a main event, and they both have a couple fights behind them and gain momentum to where uh, it makes the most sense for the uh, company. No, that's true. It's something about seeing two guys on a collision course, you know, uh, uh, especially if it's able to be built up over time. You know that they're they're headed in each other's direction, and uh, you know, with each successive victory, they're getting a little closer to each other. That's a good point. All right, so before we get into uh, UFC Fight Night Vancouver coming up this weekend, I thought we should check in with the Twitter, Frank. I uh, got a couple of Twitter questions for you. Can you handle a couple of those? Nice. All right, let's see here. Uh, this one uh, comes to us. By the way, you can follow us on Twitter, at Phone Booth Fight. And uh, you can follow Frank on Twitter, at the Frank Mirror, And you can follow me on Twitter, at Richard Hunter. Uh, this one comes to you, Frank, at the Frank Mirror. It's from Steve Rucker. Steve listened to our episode from earlier this week, and he says, uh, Frank, pretty cool hearing you dig superheroes and comic books and knowing your stuff. He was listening to our review of Suicide Squad on uh, episode 58 of Phone Booth Fighting. He wants to know, who is your favorite superhero? And thanks for the podcast. Ah. Uh. You know what, um, who is my favorite superhero? I really like, uh, I read a lot of the uh, graphic uh, stuff coming from uh, Deadpool, even before we were released. But uh, I don't know if I necessarily have a favorite. Uh, I, hmm, if I had to narrow it down. I'm not a big fan of Batman. I liked uh, his graphic novel, The Killing Joke. Yeah. Uh, that was probably one of my more uh, entertaining ones that was read that really was deep, and I was like, wow, you know, gave me a you know, really in-depth uh, look at them. Well, and we learned from, from uh, the last podcast via you that Batman doesn't kill anybody. And uh, no. you, you pointed that out, and I guess I knew that without knowing it. You know what I mean? But I just never taken note of it. And then you said it, and I started thinking it over, and I thought, well, yeah, I guess that's true. Now, maybe that's a bit frustrating to the Commissioner Gordons of the world because they're just constantly having to round up these guys for the 23rd time that Batman could have uh, could have killed at some point in the past, right? True. <laughs> I mean, you know. And that's why Batman never carried a gun. You know, all the different gadgets he had. I mean, the guy had enough money. He could have had the most high-tech weapon 
in the world, but uh, he never went that route because of the kind of that code that he had that he would never cross that line. And um, that's why, you know, every time with the Joker, no matter what the Joker did to him, uh, he wouldn't end his life, uh, regardless of whatever he felt like. He always put himself out as, uh, you know, he was the, the executive of the police force, come out to, you know, and grab you, but he left judgment and, uh, and, and punishment up to others. All right. Thanks for the question there, Steve. Uh, this one comes to us from Kunth. That's Kunth with an H, Frank. C-U-N-T-H underscore on Twitter. Uh, this is a question for both of us. He was listening to our last episode as well, and we were talking about the fact that uh, at the UFC 202 post-fight press conference, Nate Diaz took the podium with a vape pen in hand, and when probed by Ariel Hawani as to what he was smoking, he told the entire UFC press corps that it was CBD oil, which is uh, some derivative of cannabis. Well, Kunth here did a little research, and he says uh, via Twitter, the CBD oil Diaz vaped appears to be from hemp oil, legal in 50 states, so should that make it okay? And I think that's where you come in here, Frank, because as, as I understand it from a fighter standpoint, even though some things are legal or over-the-counter, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not going to be on the banned substance list, right? Yeah, because it's legal, I mean, it's not on a banned substance list. <clears throat> you can walk into the GNC and there's nothing illegal there for a person to buy, but there's several things out there that fighters can't take um, and have in their system the night of the fight or, or sometimes, you know, even during the offseason uh, whatsoever. And so um, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean just because it's legal. Going back to the question, the CBD oil it, it could well be legal. It's, it'd be the same as being in a state where marijuana is legal, um, you know, Colorado or whatnot. That doesn't yeah. mean that when we're fighting the Colorado, that you can, you know, have marijuana in your system. Because once the substance is banned, it's, uh, that's its own regulation. It's a different standard. We will uh, appreciate the questions there, and uh, you can send your questions to us via social media. Again, on Twitter, you can follow us, uh, him, at the Frank Mirror, myself, at Richard Hunter, and follow the show on Twitter, at Phone Booth Fight. We'll get to uh, some audio of a conversation I had yesterday morning with Damian Maya momentarily as we move toward the main event of UFC Fight Night Vancouver. Time to turn our attention toward that, Frank, as we break down the main card. Kicking things off is a fight between uh, two guys who, between the two of them, Frank, have 26... I'm sorry, 21, count them, 21 fight night bonuses between them. That is the rematch of Joe Lozon and Jim Miller. These two guys first matched up at UFC 155 back in 2012. It was UFC.com's fight of the year. It was one of the, it was as good of a fight as. I would say it's the best fight I've ever seen, but it's up there. I mean, if uh, if I were to just ra- first of all, if I were to round up the usual suspects of guys who've been in great fights that I've seen, give me Joe Lozon and give me Jim Miller, and then you put the two of them together, and it was a real back and forth battle. It was a fight that Miller won unanimously uh, via the cards twenty nine twenty eight on all three judges' scorecards. Although I thought there was a real argument to be made for Joe Lozon 
winning this fight. Miller went into their first fight as a two-to-one favorite, and this time, uh, four years later, uh, Lozon is a minus 145 in this rematch, so he will come in as the favorite. But it was a fight that had something for everybody. In the, the first uh, round, Miller absolutely mauled Lozon with strikes that uh, busted him open. I, I, I think has left him with a scar that's still a little bit visible uh, close to right between his eyes. Uh, round two saw the, the two go to the ground where, where you would expect a, a grappling clinic to, to be on display as it was. And uh, Miller had some luck there until Lozon closed out strong with a heel hook attempt. And then I think also in the third, he also... Lozon potentially stole that round with uh, uh, a leg lock attempt and uh, a, a, a shot at a guillotine, so or a heel hook and a shot at a guillotine. So it was one of these real back-and-forth battles, not to mention the fact that it was bloody along the lines of Kenny Florian and Sean Shirk, if you remember that one. And so as soon as I saw this come up on paper, I thought, not why is this on the main card of, of a, Fox, a big Fox Network show, but why is it either not headlining or at least co-headlining? I mean, the fact that this is kicking off a main card is going to be a pretty tough act for everybody else to follow. Yeah, well, it sets the pace for everybody and uh, leaves everybody else to go out there and really leave it on the line if they're looking for a fight bonus um, or, or get any kind of, uh, you know, uh, no rider to be put on ESPN afterwards. They're going to have a, a tough act to follow. Uh, I think, again, that, uh, you know, both these guys match up well. I think both guys are great on the ground. Both guys have good hands and striking. And even though Jim Miller got the better of him uh, the first round, that first fight, I wouldn't be surprised if it goes the other way as far as uh, both guys are capable of, uh, of hurting each other with their striking. On the ground, Lausanne, though, is much more efficient, I think, at leg locks. Uh, Jim Miller never seems to be somebody who attacks the legs. And I think the, that threw him off. It's kind of something that not a lot of guys do on the ground in, uh, in MMA. And so if you do have a good, you know, leg attack, uh, offense, it can throw guys off that are very good grapplers. And, uh, you know, Miller's going to have to be leery of that. And I wonder if it's going to hold him back a little bit this next fight, you know, worrying about his feet and, and worrying about, you know, any kind of uh, submission attempts he could be stuck in. Yeah, and the first fight, as bloody as it was, it made uh, submissions a little bit uh, slippier, sli uh, 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 little slip, uh, slippery in terms of holding on to them. Uh, if if somebody isn't busted open like that, and uh, especially if Lozon's going for those legs in in the the early, you know, maybe the first round, that might be a little more treacherous for uh, for Miller to navigate around. Now, both these guys are coming off of first round stoppage TKO stoppage victories. Uh, Lozon became only the second man to ever stop Diego Sanchez at UFC 200. Uh, about 90 seconds into their fight. And then also on that same card, Jim Miller stopped Takeya Mizugaki two minutes and 18 seconds into their fight. So both guys are uh, coming off of uh, early uh, stoppage TKO victories. Uh, you know, one thing that, uh, that I thought came up a little bit in their first fight, and maybe you can speak to the technical aspect of this, Frank, is Jim Miller is a southpaw. And one thing that he had a lot of, uh, of effectiveness with in terms of uh, hitting Lozon with was when the fighters are opposites. In other words, southpaw versus orthodox. Miller was able to hit Lozon's lead leg 
with an inside kick that took Lozon down uh, repeatedly. And, and I guess that's something about the way that the lefty versus the orthodox opponent matches up and thus exposes the inside of your lead leg to kicks. Do I have that right? Well, and what it does is it exposes it to the power side. When uh, you know Jim throws a kick now, the inside leg kick being um, the left leg, because yeah. that's what leg uh, uh, Lozon has forward. Now, Miller being the southpaw, his left leg is back. So when he throws it, um, it's going to come and hit with the power of a, a rear leg movement. Okay. And so when both guys are actually open for it. Um, so when the leg, when that leg kick lands, it definitely lands with a lot more force. The problem is it just doesn't usually land with much frequency because it's easier to see. Where if you know both of our, you know, both left legs are forward or both right legs are forward, uh, it tends to be a quicker kick that scores. Um, but not necessarily causing the same kind of damage. So you can throw more of them without getting checked, whereas when it's in the rear, you can throw it harder, but it usually comes with less frequency. Having that tough act to follow is going to be uh, Rowdy Beck Rawlings uh, from the land down under taking on the returning Paige Van Zant. Frank, Paige Van Zant has been out for about nine months after she was really decimated by Rose Namajunas, a uh, submission about halfway through the fifth round followed a kind of a, well, really a one-sided beatdown from Rose Namajunas back uh, in December of last year. She took time off, did Dancing with the Stars, and uh, now she's back and she's taken on Beck Rawlings. Now, Rose Namajunas was, was Paige Van Zant's only defeat and only one of two defeats in her entire career. Uh, Beck Rawlings is on a two-fight win streak after dropping her uh, initial UFC fight to Heather Joe Clark. Uh, Rawlings trains out of Alliance MMA in San Diego with Eric Del Fierro, despite being from Australia. She always comes over and does uh, her camps over here. I guess my first question to you, Frank, is how much stock do you put in a fighter uh, being sort of, you know, decimated one-sided the way that that page was with rose and then having that time off kind of like maybe what we anticipate from ronda rousey should she return not that page was as dominant as as ronda was when she was defeated but still you had the ronda being defeated for the first time page uh being defeated for only the second time in her career but both fighters being upset i think both fighters were were favorites i think page was favorite going in against uh rose and, and ended up kind of getting, you know, exposed in a way in that fight and then taking an extended break off. How much do you think goes into, um, you know, what do they have after such a long layoff? you think those long layoffs are a good idea, or do you think it's better to really try to get right back on the horse? Well, if it's a fighter's first time they've ran into that, I typically think it's better to turn around and get back out there. I think that, uh, you know, the, the first loss, can be very detrimental to somebody first time they you know expose their own weaknesses and their own mortality i think too much time outside the octagon outside the fighting realm i think uh, gives you too much time for that to settle in and cause a lot of doubts that you're not able to erase by any other way but performing um if it's a fighter who's a veteran and somebody like say uh, let's say carlos condit right he's had so many fights you know or donald cerrone so many fights that if one of them were to take a layoff after a bad fight. I wouldn't think nothing of it besides, well, here's a veteran who knows to give his body some time to rest, recuperate, and get back on the horse. 
But when it's relatively a young fighter like a Paige Van Zandt, who obviously I don't think has had a lot of miles on her body, I would prefer for her to have jumped back in there. I think that, uh, you know, that monkey on your back, being you know, when it's the first loss like that, especially such a one-sided one, I think that uh, it would have been better to get back in there right off the bat. Um, so I'm not a fan of taking a long layoff in that situation. Yeah, her only other loss was to Tisha Torres the uh, better part of four years ago, but that was back in Invicta. You know, that was not seen by nearly as many people, and it was not on the UFC stage, and it was before the, the Reebok deal and Dancing with the Stars yeah. and all that sort of thing. Well, she has a lot of hype going behind her. Uh, you know, she's one of the uh, first athletes to get signed by Reebok to have a, a sponsorship outside of just what they're sponsoring the UFC. Right. She's been giving you know the dancing and the star with the stars uh, deal. So I think you know, uh, you know, Paige has gotten a lot of things going her way. You know, one, you know, she's a good fighter, but you know, she also looks the part for somebody who's very marketable, and so. Uh, she has a lot of weight on her shoulders. That goes, you know, it's a double-edged sword in one sense. Um, her paychecks are probably uh, higher than what would warrant somebody of her same skill level. But on the downfall, she has a lot more eyes on her, a lot more pressure. That gets us to the co-main event Saturday night in Vancouver, which is Anthony Showtime Pettis dropping down to the 145-pound featherweight limit after a third consecutive loss in his most recent outing against Edson Barbosa back in April, he's going to be taking on number six rank featherweight Charles Oliveira. Um, interesting things here uh, that, that jump off the paper, Frank. You know, first of all, Anthony Pettis, boy, just like that on a three-fight losing streak. I mean, it seems like not very long ago that we were talking – I mean, we, we talked about him, of course, as the lightweight champion of the world, but not only that, pound for pound, one of the best fighters in the sport. And it seemed like that that March 2015 loss, speaking of one-sided losses, to Rafael Dos Anjos really started a, a skid for him. He then followed that up with a split decision loss to Eddie Alvarez and a unanimous decision loss to Edson Barbosa. Uh, both of those came uh, in the earlier part of this year. And all of a sudden, just like that, it looks like Anthony Pettis is, is trying to reset his career at 145 pounds. Yeah, you know, and it's strange, too, because honestly, meeting you know uh, Pettis in person, I didn't see him as somebody who could make 45. Mm. I thought that he was pretty good size for lightweight, and, uh, and featherweight was going to be a very hard uh, you know, cut for him. So I'm really interested to see how his body performs. Just because a guy can make a weight class on the scale doesn't mean he's suited for there. It's kind of like what we talked about last week about Donald Cerrone. Um, obviously, he can make 55, and you know he's had success there. But it looks like he feels so much better and performs better even at welterweight. So I'm curious if Pettis is going to suffer at all from this kind of weight cut. Uh, I just want to know how good he's possibly going to be. And I understand trying to reinvent yourself, come out with something new to give people a reason to, uh, you know, get back on the bandwagon and, and moving forward. Uh, you know, reinventing yourself by going to a weight class is a very good strategy. I get it. But uh, at the same time, uh, how healthy is he going to be? Another thing that he's shaken up here a little bit is his training camp regimen, Frank. You know, Anthony Pettis has spent his entire career with Duke Rufus and Rufus Sport in his hometown of Milwaukee. He hasn't left the camp, but he split his time this time around between uh, Duke Rufus's camp 
and the Jackson Winklejohn camp in Albuquerque, which is, you know, as, as big of a camp as there is these days, or at least as, as well known of one. Uh, what do you think about that? I mean, it, I, I just, it seems to me that with a couple of high profile camps like that, you know, it's going to be noticed obviously, uh, and it's going to be talked about and it's going to be profiled on the countdown shows and whatnot. And that, uh, you know, you're, you're by shaking things up like that, you might also be running the risk of, of ruffling a few feathers and raising a few eyebrows. Well, hopefully, I mean, I think he's built the kind of relationship with, uh, you know, Rufus, that nobody there is going to be hurt by a guy trying to do better by himself. It isn't like by changing camps, you're looking for some kind of advantage financially and you're looking to screw over anybody that's helped you out. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're purely motivated by the fact that you want to get better. You know, losing three fights in a row, uh, I think he's just trying to open up his uh, perspective to seeing different ways of getting things done. Um, maybe, you know, he does it for a camp or two and then fully goes back to his old camp or maybe transfers all the way over. But either way, it's a good sign that a fighter's trying to look for answers when, you know, he's been unsuccessful three times in a row. Uh, and I personally have always been a guy to train around with different people. Anybody, you know, that I thought could offer me information or make me better, I'd go there. And I was real quick to judge people if anybody got mad at me. I'd be like, hey, wait a minute, is this about you or is this about me? Mm. You know, so if any time a camp would get upset or if any training partners, you know, why are you going over there or doing this? It's like, hey, at the end of the day, I'm the one going in the octagon. I need to do what I feel is best for me. And anybody that, you know, his feelings are hurt by that, I think they need to revisit what they're, who, who's most important. Is it them in the corner or is it you as the fighter? Anthony Pettis, despite the fact that he's on this uh, three-fight losing streak, has never been finished inside the octagon. He holds knockout victories over the likes of Donald Cerrone, Joe Lozon, and Danny Castillo. He has submitted people like Benson Henderson and Gilbert Melendez, but let me tell you, he has taken on a guy who uh, has won five of his last six fights in Charles Oliveira and is such a well-rounded submission specialist, Frank, that he's used six different submissions on his way to victory inside the octagon, including the only calf slicer submission in UFC history. How's that for a trivia point? Yeah. Um, I definitely think that uh, for testing out new waters in a new weight class, I think it would have been a little bit... uh better on the management part of uh, Pettis to pick a guy who's not so hot right now. Olivier is, you know, he's looking like he's, you know, one or two fights away from a title shot. Um, So that wouldn't have been the fight I would have picked because you're walking in there. Like I said earlier, we have a new weight cut. A guy's dropping 10 more pounds than he's used to dropping Uh uh, in his last, you know, couple of years of being a fighter. Uh, That in itself is its own monster to slay. And on top of that, you have to have somebody else that's extremely tough. Not that there's any easy fights, but I feel like there was less dangerous fights to take than this one. Um, so uh, a lot to be gained if he can come out there and be successful against Olivier. You know, that'll really cement him very quickly in the featherweight division. But I, I just feel like this first fight out, most people in the know would not have judged him and have been like, hey, I'm going to go down a weight class. Let me have somebody who's not ranked top five, you know, not top 10 guy. Maybe I can have somebody from that 10 to 15 range mm-hmm. just to get my feet wet. Just, you know, uh, I'm going to be in a new body, uh, you know, new weight cut, new hydration period. You know, there's some factors going on that are, you know, that I'm dealing with that, uh, 
that are besides just you know getting the octagon and who's facing me. It seems like one of those judgment calls, Frank, on the part of Pettis and his management, where he's looking at this and he's saying, okay. I've I've been so used to being considered a top lightweight contender that I kind of can't remember the last time I wasn't considered that. So I can roll the dice here and take on uh, a guy who's ranked just outside of the top five in my new division, and if I beat him, I'm an instant contender as opposed to being willing to take that step back like you talked to. And even in uh, the aftermath of an impressive victory, uh, be willing to accept people saying, okay, look good at that weight class. Now let's see what he can do against top 10 competition. It's it's really kind of a way to – it's a gamble, and hopefully it pays off in terms of being able to to jump the line, doesn't it? Uh, true. Um, I could see the gamble behind it because at least this first time he does have a get-out-of-jail-free card, per mm. se. Yeah. If uh, he, he has a bad showing against Olivier – um, he could always say that, well, you know, the weight cut was too hard for me. The problem with that is, though, that Olivier is so good that people might not be like, well, even if the weight cut was good, you've lost three fights in a row, I think that guy kicks your ass anyways. So going back to what I was thinking, if he does take an easier fight and he's not successful, um, he can really fall back on that wall. I mean, that guy wasn't even in the top 15. You surely don't think I would have lost to him if I would have been feeling good. Obviously, it was because of the uh, heavy weight cut. You know, you could put more on that and then, you know, rebuild himself back up at 55 and maybe figure out another way to, re, you know, to really uh, get back in the win column. So uh, there is that thought process. You know, again, I, I see the gamble behind it, but I think for long term, you know, especially wanting to stay down there, let's say he does have a hard time with the weight cut. Wouldn't it have been better if he fought somebody who's not just outside the top five? He fights a guy who's maybe in the top 15. Yeah. He, maybe he struggles a little bit with the weight cut, but he's still able to perform at a high enough level that he can get a victory. So he snaps the losing streak. He sees what it feels like to be at 45. And then next time he'll be a much stronger version of himself if he continues to stay there, figure out how to dial it in a little bit better instead of that, you know, that first time, that first go, stepping right into uh, you know, hellfire. That gets us to our main event title uh, contender eliminator between Damian Maya and Carlos Condit. Before we break down that uh, welterweight main attraction, let's uh, play for you the phone conversation I had with Damian Maya yesterday morning. Forgive my voice because, as I said, I was I was even sicker yesterday morning than I am today. But I got through it, and uh, this was my conversation with uh, I got to say probably the best jujitsu specialist going in MMA today, Damian Maya. Joining me on the guest line right now is the man who will be headlining the UFC Fox card on Saturday against Carlos Condit, jiu-jitsu specialist Damian Maya. Damian, good to talk to you. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you, Richard. Really excited to see this match. I thought I was going to get to see it in person this past week here in Las Vegas at UFC 202, but uh, it was moved off of that card and up to Vancouver. Let me ask you about that first. Your thoughts on uh, this transitioning to a main event. It does mean uh, two extra rounds going from a three-round fight to a five-round fight. Does that uh, make any difference to you? Uh, I think that that's you know makes difference for me and for him. So, you know, to five fight five rounds, it's of course it's harder, but you know, 
is harder for me, harder for him, and and it's just great to be in a main event, and especially in this city, in Vancouver, which, you know, Canada loves MMA, and, and you know, you, you can feel the, the energy when you come here. You know, Damien, uh, Carlos Condit has a very active guard. He he hasn't been submitted in 10 years, and he's never been submitted inside the UFC or, or WEC competition. Uh, I think you definitely have the jiu-jitsu advantage, but how do you rate his jiu-jitsu in comparison? I think he has a good jiu-jitsu. He's not average. You know, I can't see when he, he goes on bottom, he plays guard well, he does, like, different stuff. He tries to go through, you know, submissions, arm submissions, omoplata, and he's, he's, he's you know... Uh, a guy who really, you know, you can see that when he trains, he probably tries to learn new stuff. So a guy like that is always danger, you know. He's not an easy guy. When you take him down, doesn't mean you're going to be able to, you know, do whatever you want because he he, he, he has a good guard. Condit uh, definitely poses a threat on his feet. But, you know, Damien, your striking has improved significantly uh, since dropping down to welterweight in the UFC. What do you, what do you attribute that improvement in striking to? Uh, train, you know, I like to train. I love I love boxing and Thai boxing, and uh, you know, I, I mainly I love to learn. So everything that I, you know, every day I go to the academy, I want to learn something new, and I want to train and get better in something new. And for me, to train is not is not boring because you're learning every day. So when you, I think when you, when I have this mindset, you know, I I I I I, I get better every day. You've uh, really really been on fire since uh, dropping down to to welterweight. Going back a handful of fights when you decided to do that, uh, what what led you to? debut in the UFC at, at middleweight. Was that something that, that dropped to welterweight that you wished uh, you would have done all along, or was the timing not right to have done that uh, back in the beginning? Actually, you know, I came from a jiu-jitsu background, so we don't drop too much weight. And for me, it was just, you know, when I started the UFC, I was around 190, and I won 190 you know, something, maximum 195, something like that. So I thought it was impossible to go to 170. You know, I didn't know how to do well, and I thought it was much easier to go, and and, and that was safer to go 185. And then when I when I lost my fight to Weidman, I realized how big the guys, you know, were. And, yeah. And it, it, it also changed, you know, during my, my time as a, a middleweight. Like, when I started the UFC, I would fight sometimes guys with my size, but after, like, a couple of years, everybody was much bigger than me, you know, because the sport was evolving, and people were, you know, cutting more and more weight. So, you know, I realized I fight guys like Weidman, you know, like Anderson, and, like, K.O., they were all, all, you know, different, you know, different weight class than me. Uh, they were like much bigger, you know, taller, and uh, and I said, okay, let's let's try to drop to one seven. Let's see what happens, and you know, things went better. I think. Now, Carlos Condit has uh, fifteen knockouts, but he's also got thirteen submissions. He's an incredibly well-rounded fighter. Do you anticipate that uh, he is one of the most well-rounded, if not maybe the most well-rounded fighter that you faced in the UFC? 
yeah, I think so. I think he, I think he, besides maybe, I don't know, Anderson was very well-rounded too, because yeah. he had a lot of submissions, and Whiteman too, and, but, you know, he, he, he is one of the most well-rounded fighters that I ever fought. Now, coming into this fight, Damian, uh, the UFC has ranked has you ranked at number four. Carlos sits there at number five. And Dana White has mm-hmm. already said that the champion, Tyron Woodley, will next face Stephen Thompson. So the only other guys who are ranked above you are guys coming off of losses, Lawler and McDonald. G- given all that, do you believe mm-hmm. that this win on Saturday earns you a title shot? Yeah, I believe so. I believe, I firmly believe on that. Well, Damien, uh, thank you so much for the time this morning. Really looking forward to seeing this uh, matchup stylistically looking so interesting on paper. And uh, it will be the headliner this Saturday night in Vancouver, UFC on Fox. Best of luck in there, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you, Damien. Thank you. Thank you very much. So there's my visit with uh, number four ranked Damian Maya Frank. He's taken on number five ranked Carlos Condit, the natural born killer in uh, this weekend's main event. Thoughts on this matchup? You've got, uh, unless you want to disagree, I think the best jiu-jitsu specialist in Maya taken on quite possibly one of the best well-rounded mixed martial artists in the UFC and Carlos Condit. Yeah, I definitely think Maya is probably the greatest, you know, jiu-jitsu practitioner right now in the UFC. Um, uh, and Carlos Condit's no slouch of jiu-jitsu. He really is very good and proficient there. But I've trained with Maya, and, uh, and I've been in the room with Condit, moved around with him. and not I don't think I've ever really wrestled live goes with Condit, but I have trained live with uh, <laughs> Damien. And, uh, you know, Damien Maya, I think his takedowns are a little underrated, but he does get guys down that are very strong. It's just that his takedowns are very efficient. They're very clean you know and, and really they're not you know nothing crazy there's no explosive uh, movements but you know he just he works his way into a clinch has a great single leg uh, head inside takedown and he puts people down and, and when he puts somebody down too he's such a control uh, master in jiu-jitsu that he's really hard to work around uh, i like to be mobile on the ground and move around and hit angles and when we trained together he was really able to shut down a lot of my motion we just a lot saw of my we just I was going to say, we just saw him do that very thing to Matt Brown. Yeah, you, just, you can't move with this guy. He's very good at just, I mean, he's, he has very strong, tight control. And uh, I think that, that, you know, if they hit the ground, I think there's a huge division in their abilities. And it's nothing against Condit at all. In fact, if tomorrow I knew I had to fight, you know, Damian Mai in a fight, I would make sure it didn't go to the ground. Mm. Uh, he's that good. Uh, it's very much a pain in the ass to fight him there. Um, and so uh, it's very fatiguing. It's very, you know, uh, it, it's uh, frustrating uh, because of his ability to control you. And then on his feet, though, I think Carlos is obviously the better striker. The only problem, though, with Carlos is that have great knockout power, and Damien has a great chin. So even him winning around here and around there through his superior footwork and great combinations and, and, and definite attacks that Carlos brings to the, to the game. Um, I don't think he has the, you know, I mean, he's capable. I've seen him with his kicks drop, you know, a GSB it's there, but it's just not as uh, much of his, his game is not power. He's not known as a guy that, well, if you step in on me, I'm gonna hit you with a straight right down the middle and, you know, and put your lights out. 
uh, I think Condit style is much more flowy, uh, you know, and, and much more uh, angles of attack. Uh, guys have an easy time walking him down because there isn't that horsepower, if you walk in, I'm going to hurt you type of maneuver. Well, you see different guys in different weight classes, they have that, you know, you know develop that like, well, if you walk towards me, you know, you, you, you better come behind something. You can't just walk me down or I'm going to, uh, you know, really hit you hard and make you pay for that. You better set me up before you, you know, close the distance. And so I think that even though Damien might get tagged up as far as, you know, outpointed on his feet, I think eventually being on his bicycle, you know, Damien gets a hold of him and he takes him down, and I see the fight being finished in a submission. So you like Maya in this fight via submission, you think? I do. Just because I've trained with both guys, and uh, I think if Condit wins, he has to win a decision. You know, by outstriking him and, and looking good, and, and Conor is extremely well-rounded. But as far as who has the ability to end this fight early, um, Damian Maya, I think, has a much greater ability to finish this fight, uh, uh, defeating him through submission. And I think that, you know, uh, I don't know how many people over Jackson's is really going to be able to roll with uh, Carlos to prepare him what it's going to feel like to have Damian Maya uh, get a hold of him. Well, that would be quite an accomplishment for Maya. Uh, uh, Condit has not been submitted in 10 years and never inside UFC and WEC competition. Maya, however, is on a five-fight winning streak. And, you know, his hands have improved, Frank. I mean, you kind of alluded to that. But I, I think that... You know, when Maya, the old Maya, when Maya was fighting at middleweight, and you heard me talk about that uh, with him in my phone conversation, when, um, you know, he he wasn't initially programmed to be thinking about cutting a lot of weight and really kind of had to wrap his mind around that to get down to welterweight. But, you know, he got that shot at Anderson Silva pretty early on, and uh, at that point, Anderson was was too much for him to handle. But one thing that we've seen, both in Maya coming down to welterweight, but also as the years have progressed, is that Maya's hands have gotten better. They're serviceable. He's nowhere near the top strikers uh, in the UFC necessarily. But I guess my question for you is, has that improvement been significant enough that it's not considered so much of a glaring weakness anymore? No, I think so. I think that he's able to do very well with his hands. Um, I just don't know if Damien, you know, I think his hands, he might have the same amount of power as Carlos does where, you know, he's able to score shots. And the different mentality is now his hands are enough of a distraction because they're effective enough that he's hitting you, that you have to respect them or, you know, you completely get outpointed that way. And he's able to get the clinch and get the takedown where he really wants to fight, where he's really going to have a, a definite advantage over everybody else in the division. Um, so, you know, he's not a one trick pony. You can't just sit there and put your hands down and go, well, if I just don't get taken down, this is an easy victory. Uh, you have to still respect his hands of late, but, uh, uh, once he gets the fight to the ground, this is where he has, he's just head and shoulders above everybody else. Any red flags raised, uh, for you, Frank, with, uh, Carlos Condit's narrow, uh, split decision loss in January to Robbie Lawler and then everything that subsequently happened with Condit talking about retirement and you know then he was only for sure going to come back if he could get a rematch with Lawler or a title fight and then you know there was there was just a lot it seemed like a lot of indecision and and introspection 
on the part of Carlos. Do you think there's anything to read into that in terms of the school of thought that, you know, once a fighter sort of starts talking like they have one foot out the door that you've, you've, you've got to wonder about uh, how hard they're ready to press on the gas? Yeah, I know because uh, Carlos has had his title shots and, uh, you know, won the interim belt at one time at welterweight. I, I don't know. It seems almost from just listening to his interviews, you one would question how much is his drive to go out there and push himself. Uh, I know he's a pretty driven guy to begin with, and I don't, I don't think we're going to see a guy go out there completely not take the fight seriously. But at the same time, you know, how much of that, you know, uh, killer instinct that he's so much is, is, has gained him so much success in the past is going to be there. Because uh, Damien's very determined to go out there and be, uh, you know, successful. He's only had one title shot at 185. He reinvented himself by going down to welterweight. And, you know, he's on the rise. He's, uh, you know, he's uh, one or two fights away from being back in the talk of uh, getting a title shot himself. So right now, off the bat, you, it looks like Damien is a much more driven guy. doesn't necessarily mean so. I'm not speaking as from, you know, first-hand experience of sitting down at the table looking over across the Carlos anymore. But uh, just, you know, the talk of, that he's had the last couple months, it, it, it would lead you to believe that, Huh, I wonder how focused he's really going to be for this fight, for his camp, you know, leading up to it, you know, when it came to those times that he had to skip hanging out with the kids and wife and go and train. Normally, it wasn't you know, how many times, that, you know, this time around, did he take time off? Did he spend more time with the kids and wife? Did he do the things that a father would do and not somebody who's, you know, really starving for a title shot? That is your main card this Saturday night in uh, Vancouver. UFC returns to the Big Fox Network. And uh, Frank and I are going to get together and watch the fight card live. And I think we're going to experiment with some type of, uh, not to be confused with the fight companion, our uh, pugilism partner that we like to offer as uh, alternative commentary to the fight. Uh, we're going to uh, be experimenting with that somehow over the weekend. Just uh, stick to our social media for details on, on because it's still in kind of its beta form, how we're testing these things. But the, the most important thing for everyone's health is that I'm going to arrive with a truckload full of surgical masks and hazmat uniforms in a variety of sizes, Frank, for you and the smaller mirrors so that I don't get anyone ill. But I'm hoping to be well on the road to recovery by Saturday, so don't worry. Hopefully, I'm glad. <laughs> you don't know, man. It might just be allergies. Yeah, it might might be. So uh, I'll uh, nonetheless. I I have everybody's health first and foremost in mind. So we're gonna get together, watch the fights uh, on Saturday, and we'll have a lot to talk about uh, in the uh, coming week after the fights. And uh, well, quick reminder that uh, you can get the Phone Booth Fighting Podcast, which, of course, comes your way twice weekly, new episodes Tuesdays and Fridays, not only on iTunes, not only on Stitcher Radio and Google Play, but also SoundCloud. That is, uh, that's uh, one that people have been asking about for some time, so I just expanded our uh, podcasting universe over into the SoundCloud realm, and that's paying dividends right away. So uh, you get it on all of those platforms as well as, of course, the good old phoneboothfighting.com. You can play it right there off the desktop if you like. But please, while you're playing it, just tell one friend. And if you don't have a friend, make a friend, and then tell them about Phone Booth Fighting so we can grow this show. Frank, uh, I will see you on Saturday for the fights, and uh, thanks for jumping on the phone with me, and i got to go and do some coughing now. 
So I'll let you get back to the family, and I'll see you on Saturday. All right, man. See you Saturday. For Frank, I'm Richard. This has been Phone Booth Fighting. We'll see you next time. Everybody was coming.